welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Just a reminder before we get started to sign up for my newsletter at jasonperera.ca, where you'll receive notification of all podcasts, television appearances, blog posts, and etc. On today's show. Today's show, I have Kevin Kleiman, co-founder and co-CEO of Humi. Humi is an online platform for basically managing everything to do with people in your business. And I brought him on specifically to talk about some HR tricks, traps, and other things you should be aware of. What's the tie into financial planning? Well, essentially, people are typically your biggest expense and also your biggest liability if you're not careful. So being able to better manage the HR side of your business and knowing what the pits and perils are is incredibly valuable. And with that, here's my interview with Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Jason. Uh, it's great to be here. Big fan of the podcast. Big honor to be on. Oh, thank you, Kevin. It's a long, long time listener, long time friend. Uh, glad to have you on. So uh, Kevin Kleiman, co-CEO of, of Humi, tell us a little bit about what it is you do and what your company does. Sure. Uh, so Humi is a cloud-based employee system of record for Canadian businesses with five to 500 people. So it's kind of a fancy way of saying we combine payroll, HR, health benefits, into a single simple system, cloud-based system that can be accessed from any device, phone, laptop, tablet, and anywhere. So we're really replacing paper contracts, Excel spreadsheets, all the siloed, multiple siloed systems that people use to manage the people side of their business. Um, so if you think about what Shopify does for the retail side of a, you know, the customer side of a business, we do that for the people side. And uh, the company is four and a half years old. There's now over a thousand companies who are on CUNY and they employ over 30,000 people. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's a small business owner has had that experience of HR is this thing you have to take care of. And it's not necessarily the most structured approach to it. Spreadsheets, paper files, stuff everywhere, uh, maybe not even checklists. You know, it's, it, it can be pretty scattershot. So I brought you on today to specifically talk, not specifically around financial planning, but around one of the biggest expenditures that people have in their business and the biggest liabilities people have, which is the people side of their business. And if you don't plan that out right, you have suboptimal performance and you have suboptimal financial performance and increased liabilities. So hence the parlay and the connection to financial planning. Mm -hmm. So specifically, you know, we're, we're going to talk about a couple of things talking about, we'll start with HR and then we'll talk about payroll and, and benefits and a bunch of kind of solutions and, and advice that you have for people around there. So uh, when it comes to HR tricks and traps, let's talk about basically when someone comes on board, like what stats do you have on cost of hiring people and what turnover causes costs people? So what is the, the onboarding and maintenance or loss of people cost an employer beyond just the, the salaries? Right. So thinking about this cost specifically is a good analogy for the cost and thinking about HR just in general. For most people intuitively, the people, most people's businesses rely on people in one way, way, shape, or another. It's really hard to measure that output as you invest in people, in better systems for them, managing them, helping them have the goals. Hard versus like, you know, if you have Salesforce and you have better sales software, you can very accurate, very obviously see the increases or decrease in revenue because of that. There's a lot of interesting stats as it relates to turnover. And a lot of it comes back to how you onboard and recruit employees. So you think about, I 
like to break down HR into three different buckets, how you find people, how you bring them aboard, and then how you keep them at the company. So starting with recruiting, you really want to make sure that you're filtering for culture fit off the bat. So if you're a company who doesn't care about what people wear or care very deeply about like people wearing suits, not swearing, swearing, you want to make sure you find the people that are aligned with that because it's going to cause friction right off the bat if they don't. And then the next thing you want to do is use your recruiting process as kind of like a signaling for the employee as to what their expectations should be as an employee. So mm-hmm. it is very thorough and deep and takes a long time. That should give employees a good sense of how working at the company should be. It's fast and responsive. You want to show employees by example what their tenure might look like in the form of their interview coming in. In a way, it's almost like the first date, right? Like you're, you're trying to establish the value to that to that member of your team, right? Exactly. And authenticity really matters. Mm-hmm. If you show a side of the business, just like a date, if you are you know, not authentic about who you are, people will eventually find out and it's going to cause issues and you're going to break up. You're yep. honest up front and allow people to self-filter themselves out. I think the best case scenario for a lot of business is they go to interview somebody and they say, this is a great process. I obviously would not enjoy working here, so I won't continue on with the job process. Better than having somebody take a job, onboard, you spend tons of time and resources, they don't, and eventually they don't work out. Because to your point, the cost losing an employee is much more than just their severance cost. It's the cost of your time to go find another person and train them up and get them embedded within the team. And also the potential that you run into some sort of legal ramifications in terminating that employee from the company. Yeah. I mean, the second year past three months in Ontario, and I'm not sure, you know, there are different provinces have different regulations. You know, you're on the hook, you're on the hook, right? Like those people have rights. And yeah, so the cost of turnover, I mean, we talked about statistics. You mentioned there some interesting ones. Do we know like what, what the cost of turnover is for people or what the equivalent is to say in, in terms of keeping them happy? It's really company dependent, you know, yeah. based on like how many people are within the company, how much money yeah. is recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. So Putting an exact value on it is really tough. We do know, however, that a huge percentage of people who turn over within the first, I think it's either six or 18 months. Apologies. I really should have these stats offhand. I don't expect uh, you to have like statistics right in front of you, but go on. You know, approximate 12, you know, 18 months, go on. Right. I mean, it's for the people who turn over quickly, like within the within the first two years, no within the first two weeks. Wow. And so wow. and like, this is a huge, it, like, it's an astonishing number, something like 50 plus percent of those people. And that's why the onboarding experience is so important. Well, that's interesting because I feel like most of us have probably had that experience where we took a job and we're like, okay, maybe this wasn't the best decision, but I'll give it a chance. Right. And then maybe that's, you know, it's, I feel like, yeah, the, the kind of like mental, well, I'll give it a year. Right. Or I don't want my resume to look like I'm changing jobs every six months. Right. So I feel like there's probably a lot of practical reasoning that most of us can relate to who've, who've had similar, similar situations. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. you think about it, there's tons of uncertainty, excitement, uh, nervousness, and you come in. If that first experience is not a good one, it can have a, like, a very negative effect on that person's long-term trajectory with the company. So you want to remove as much friction as possible from that first day, first week. Something I think Humi does really well is taking away the paperwork side of things. So for a lot of people, when they show up at the day one, they're sat down at a desk with a stack of paper and yeah. know, take three hours to fill this out. Let's sign you up on the benefits plan, hopefully get you onboarded to payroll, sign all these paper contracts, you know, read them. You know, maybe you need a lawyer to go check them out. With Humi, 
you can fill a couple of fields in, have an email sent to that person days or you know, a week in advance of their start. So when they begin that first day, they're doing things that really are impactful to getting them embedded into the culture. You know, you want them to meet everyone on the team and build emotional bonds with the people they work with to really start to understand what their work is and why they're doing the work they're doing. You don't want them filling out paperwork. You don't want them frustrated looking at <laughs> sat in a corner by themselves. No one's good at filling out insurance forms, right? That's that's kind of almost universal. Like, you know, you're not used to filling out tax forms. You're not feel used to filling out insurance forms. You know, the frustration is you're typically putting in the same information to these same forms for different companies and all this other stuff. So it takes far longer than it should. And frankly, I think there's a lot to be said about digital onboarding as a real message to, hey, not only not only are we modern as a company because we're able to do this digitally, but we made it easy. You know, we've taken the time to, to actually bother taking the time to make it easy for you. So besides the digital onboarding piece and making that, you know, first day of paperwork minimized, what are some other best practices around onboarding that really work effectively and have an impact? So I briefly mentioned it, building some sort of emotional bond between that person and the rest of the team is incredibly important because one of the main drivers of keeping people happy and content and in their job for a long time is the way they feel about their coworkers and their managers specifically. So at QB, your first day at work, you go out to lunch with your entire department. You sit down with the leader of your department as well as do a one-on-one with the leaders of every department. It doesn't have to be as formal as that, but helping people get introduced and start to build friendships or at least you know, a sense of familiarity with the people they work with is really important at the outset. And then also, you know, recognizing that it's kind of a stressful, nerve-wracking experience to have to make first impressions with so many people. So make that first week really easy for the person, you know, surprise them on the first day, tell them that they're done at like 2 or 3 p.m., give them half a day off on Friday, really help lighten their load and help them to like focus on being ramped within the company and getting them comfortable working alongside their coworkers. Really important things to think about when building an onboarding process. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, almost like in the experience, I keep on finding simple analogies for everything, but almost like in the experience to, you know, having to switch schools when you're a kid, right? You go into a new environment, everybody's in their rhythm and their, their dynamics are all worked out and you're just kind of looking from the outside in. In those cases, you don't get a guide, but if you think about it in that analogy, having a process for how you onboard these people and give them the best probability for, for success and entrenchment in your firm is probably, well, I don't care if it's checklists, I don't care what it is. Think of that as another, another experience, just like a customer experience that you have to, that you have to worry, work on in order to ensure success. Absolutely. I think that's a great analogy. Yeah. So let's talk about what happens when you fail to do this. I mean, besides the fact you're going to have turnover, failure to get all the paperwork and everything else done early on can have some legal implications and some implications for the insurance policy. Let's, let's talk about what, what it looks like if, if you don't take care of that properly when you start. Yeah, absolutely. So I think most people will know what the ESA is, Employment Standards Act. And that is kind of the bare minimum for companies as to how they have to treat employees. And if they don't, it creates real legal liabilities. So you can be sued for discriminating against people, of not paying them the, the right amounts, of not giving them the right structure in terms of their work hours. And these are li- like liabilities that everyone faces and things that you just want to know are covered, right? It's kind of like that. It's one of the lowest, like it's a high cost, a very high potential cost, but very low return in terms of the work you do. Like it's just an expectation, but if you don't mm-hmm. do it, it could cost you massively, you know, monetarily, but also in hours. If you have to go to court, if you have to go back and forth with somebody's 
employment lawyer at a certain point. So really, it's important to have all those things sorted out from day one. Have good yep. employment contracts, have good processes for termination, making sure everyone is on the benefits plan when they need to be. You know, as you know, if you don't get somebody on the benefits plan in time, they're considered a late applicant, then they might have to undergo medicals. And- yeah, if they got a history, then they may not get the coverage, which is which is problematic, right? I mean, one of the things that people look for when they when they join a new employer is they ask about, I mean, does this company, does this come with benefits, right? Well, the answer is yes, but then if they take the job and they can't get the coverage because they're a late applicant, the answer becomes no, right? Like there's there's one of the things they're now going, they may be better off switching jobs to get those benefits if they're in a bad situation. For sure. And then like consider if that person gets sick and they yep. don't have the benefits that they were promised contractually, then the business is on the hook for the cost of that person's healthcare, life insurance. Like it just could turn into an absolutely terrible situation. And the liability side of business uh, of um, of group insurance to to business is just something that's not very well explained or very well understood, quite mm-hmm. honestly. But there's all kinds of tricks and traps. I mean, um, I've even seen precedence cases where someone signs up as a single person, never gets checked in with on the group plan for a decade. In that time, gets married, has children, and the company's on the hook for those kids and that that spouse because well there should have been more diligence than asking them once out of every once in 10 years time. If you're saying that you're providing benefits for, for families and you fail to just look for changes in people's lifestyle and give them that and do your diligence to make sure they sign up for that, you could be on the hook. 100%. And you know, this is just another one of those high friction things with potentially huge costs that can yep. be automated away. And absolutely, you, know, you have good processes. I don't want to show too much for QME or like having a good HRAS, but even just building up, you know, if you're starting small, build out some processes through Google Doc and Zapier and a couple of other things. Yeah. And also like a system like Humi and there are a couple other good ones out there. It's five, ten dollars per person per month. You consider yeah. the potential cost to a business if you don't get those things done and how many things there are to do, it makes back its money day one. Yeah. Oh, I'll let you plug your, your product. It's fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's far more attractive than the alternative of building your own Google Docs. And um, in addition to that, having to deal with creating your own checklist. So it's, it's far better than the alternative of building your own stuff in Google Forms and checklists, maybe in, in Process Street or whatever it is. I mean, you can still do it, but it's just for 10 bucks a month. I'll take that deal. <laughs> yeah. Similar to most other really good SaaS products like Shopify, you pay a company to expend all the resources and building really good tools so that you don't have to. If you were to build a good HR system or record for your company, you would need 30, 40 developers full-time, you know, five, $10 a person. Preaching to the choir here. There's there's nothing I won't automate. Anyway, (laughs) so um, next question or next point. Um, Let's go on. So what are some best practices for ongoing HR concerns? So person's onboarded, person's hired. What are the, the things that, an employer should be doing and how does that protect them both from turnover and liability? Cool. So there's obviously a lot of things that can and should be done to keep people gainfully employed and productive. Feedback is a really important thing that people tend to miss or are stuck in. The traditional expectation was that you do an annual review or like twice a year review where you give somebody a salary bump or not, and you give them feedback as to how they're doing. And the truth is that it's kind of a wasted opportunity if you give people feedback once a year. People thrive on feedback and they want it. So if you can check in with people on a weekly or monthly basis to give them feedback that is applicable at the time of your meeting, that becomes hugely valuable for people, for keeping alignment between management and employees. And the same goes for 
having some sort of transparency around people's job functions. Why are they doing what are they doing? And like, how does that contribute to the company's overall goals? Yeah. If people understand their purpose better, they're going to do a better job versus, yeah. you know, if you ask them to screw in bolts and nuts and they have no idea what they're building towards. Yeah. They don't know if it's a car or a plane coming out the other end of the, uh, of the, end of the uh, assembly line, right? And that's, that's not a... You know, it sounds like it's a bit of a ridiculous example because if you're going to Boeing, you know what's going to happen. But there's plenty of people who go maybe to a major bank or an insurance company and process a document who really have no idea of the actual impact on people's lives that that document's having, right? Totally agree with you. And it's interesting because it's a challenge because when you start off a business, you start off small and you hire a bunch of people and you're in constant communication with them. So formal feedback sessions, I'd say, are less important there because you're constantly giving feedback because the boss is always talking to everybody. But as you scale and you're the boss and the boss is not talking to everybody on a daily basis anymore, it becomes a lot more important to have more formal structures around, around that because they're losing that connection to understanding just how it is they're doing or what they could do to improve if, unless, unless they have that. Good. So, so before we, uh, and before we leave HR alone, one other question for you. So dismissing people, okay, the unfortunate act of firing people. Let's talk about what are best practices surrounding dismissal and what the risks are surrounding that. So the first thing I would say is treat people well. People are human. It's a really emotional thing to lose a job yeah. and be as considerate as possible. Part of that is being prepared. Because like it can get really tough and, and when people get emotional, you can run into difficult situations. So have a release ready to go. Make sure that you have a proper offboarding checklist. And this is another great thing that you can put into a good HR system of record. Make sure the equipment that you need to take back, there's a process for that. Now that people have accounts in like six different SaaS tools or their POS and your accounting system and HR make sure there's a good accountability to, to make sure people are out of those systems in a very, very concise and effective way. And then really understand if there has to be a negotiation, what their asks could be and what your, your gives could go up to. Yeah. The truth is if you have to give employees a little bit more to get them to sign a release, it is almost always going to be much less expensive than having to go back and forth with lawyers because that just becomes a massive time suck and you know resource suck. Ultimately, like everybody's losing. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, um, there's a couple of pieces of, of kind of advice I've always given business owners surrounding this entire process is part of it goes back to your comment about being kind. And even my own firings in the past, uh, one of the things I've always told people, and it's, it's sincerely, I believe it is, you know, we're all put on this earth to do something and we can all find something that we are passionate about doing. And the honest truth is, I think the other person knows this wasn't it for them. And I often think to myself, you know, one of the crueler things that I've, uh, sorry, I read this, you know, this part, I'll fix it. Okay. When, 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 I can't remember which book I read it in, but one of the books I read on, on this basically said, Think about the cruelty of keeping someone in a job that they don't like or aren't good at, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is, yeah, they're getting paid. Yeah, they're, you know, you're, you're keeping them, you know, employed, but you're also preventing them from the opportunity to find something better. And I think on some level, we almost have to look at that as a kindness, um, as much as that may sound <laughs> a little bit frivolous, it sometimes can be, is to say, you know, enough of this, this is not a good fit for anyone. You, should, you deserve to go find something better in your life. And that's always been, that conversation has always been very well received. And then the second piece is uh, around severance, especially because it can be a pretty emotional thing sometimes to want to fire someone because if you feel like that's it, I'm, I'm done with this person. Sometimes you're not happy with their performance and the thought of having to cut them the check might grind you a certain way. Every lawyer I've ever spoken to said the exact same thing. Do not even think about giving less, give a little bit more. 
because if you do that, it shows that you did nothing wrong. In fact, you were more generous than you had to be. And if someone makes a complaint or tries to cause a problem with you, you're already in a position of strength. And a lot of employment lawyers will say, well, they followed procedure. They not only gave you what you were entitled to, they gave you more than what you were entitled to. What exactly do you think we're going to go after here? Actually, I got one more thing for you that starts before you terminate the person. How you structure yes. the time off can meaningfully impact the severance that you owe an employee when you terminate them. Having a well-structured time off policy maps. And let me give you an example. There's yeah, a please. number of different ways to accrue the time off that an employee takes during the year. So if when you start on January 1st, somebody accrues the entirety of their vacation for that year and you fire them a week later, you owe them the value of all those days. Versus if you have a good uh, time off tracking system and they accrue on a monthly basis and they're allowed to hold negative balances, you're never going to owe somebody much more than you should. So having a well-structured time off policy that is communicated well to the employee at the beginning and also in the employment contract can really help when it comes to terminations. Good to know. Excellent. So let's move on to payroll. Let's talk about some best practices regarding payroll. What are, I mean, this is a pretty dull subject for most people, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> but besides getting off of, um, I'm going to make fun of the big ones, uh, Ceridian and uh, <laughs> what's the ADP who everyone always complains about? <laughs> what, what are the best practices regarding payroll that people should contemplate? Remove all the friction because yeah. it is one of like the lowest margin, highest cost things a business will do. Reconciling payroll with your time off balances, with your benefits deductions, with terminations, with both, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The expectation from the employee side is that you get it right 100% of the time. Like, well, the obligation to the employer is to get it right 100% of the time, right? Absolutely, like, absolutely, right? If you get payroll wrong, could have massive cost implications uh, in yeah. terms of your time, in terms of actual cost to employees and, and from the business. So get rid of that friction by finding ways to integrate it with your current processes Maybe you create notifications every time, you know, once a month, maybe you have a standard list of things that have to happen mm-hmm. before you run a payroll. Maybe you just use a system that has it integrated with all those other systems. <laughs> Whatever it is, make sure you have a repeatable, very clear process for running payroll so that nothing is missed because a small mistake in payroll can cause massive headaches to people running the business, the business itself. Excellent. I mean, it's, uh, again, liability is completely one way in that, in that world. There's, I can't think that there's anything that the payroll, uh, that of a payroll obligation that is going to land uh, the employee in hot water, right? Hey, listen, um, if you input an employee's banking details for direct debit, you do it wrong and you pay somebody else. <laughs> that's, that's, that's on you. On, right, yeah. Uh, that's, that's on you. And you're, gonna, you're still going to owe the employee money. And they're going to wonder where it is, and it's going to have a negative impression of business, and you know, it just yeah. has this cascading effects. The expectation yeah. is you just get it right every time. Now, if they're inputting their own pay, their own payroll information <laughs> for the banking, then we have a different story. But nevertheless, it's still not a good position to be in. So, I mean, and I guess this is another plug for your company, which keeps on happening. I mean, integrating usually these things are very silent, and integrating them wherever possible is definitely a value. That's for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, the common theme is. People should spend time on their business, not on the things that make the business work that can just happen magically. That's yeah, very true. And, and, and every business owner, I think, will relate to that is that, you know, you spend so much time building the widget or selling the widget, which are the two functions you think are necessary, that everything else becomes secondary. And there's just a bunch of liability lying around that you might trip over one day. The more, but it doesn't have to be a giant time suck. It can, it can be automated away. It can be minimized. It can be improved upon. So 
payroll. Anything else to add for payroll? Any other things people should be aware of or, or think of or you know, best practices there? Payroll can be very uh, industry specific. Um, so mm-hmm. I won't go too deep, but you know, if you have time in attendance employees, clock in, clock out, really think about business processes and how they ultimately tie into payroll. Like if you're a restaurant owner, you should look at seven shifts because it ties mm-hmm. into POS. And then there's a simple export that can be uploaded to your payroll provider. I guess I would boil it down to think of the unique aspects to your business and how they apply to payroll and make sure that the systems you have in, in place really accommodate those. Yeah. At, at the risk of slamming the two big ones, again, I mean, everybody tends to default to the bigger ones. I mean, some of the banks even promote them specifically, but there is a serious number of smaller players that are out there in the payroll space that have far superior experiences and far easier to use consumer-friendly interfaces, largely because the bigger ones are, are really servicing the Fortune 500s and larger scale companies. And they'll take on any business because, hey, it's profitable because they have the scale, but they don't necessarily make it friendly, right? It's almost, it's definitely more of an enterprise solution than a consumer-based solution. And it's just not the easiest thing to navigate sometimes. And it's also the, an easy thing to trip up on sometimes. We've, we've had some issues with payroll providers in the past ourselves. Luckily, it's shaking out. So now that we're leaving payroll, let's go to benefits. And we talked about a couple of, of best practices, but let's talk about best practices for onboarding and maintenance of the plans in general. We'll talk about it from the employee standpoint, and then let's talk about it from the employer standpoint in terms of managing the plan themselves. So from the employee standpoint, it's really important to set expectations off of that. So mm-hmm. when you recruit somebody and onboard them, benefits should be part of the discussion because it's part of the compensation. And you want people to really understand whether what you're giving them can cover them. And also you want them to understand what tools they have at their disposal. Because ultimately what a benefits plan is supposed to do is to keep people healthy so that they can be productive at work. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting to think of like why employer supported benefits plans work so well that the common shared incentive between the government and the small businesses, you know, business in this country is the same in keeping people healthy and productive. And by giving them, it's a, would you call it a tax shelter or a tax scheme? Or? A tax break. I would say it's a tax break. It's a, it's a you know, it's, you know, infant background, health and dental benefits are deductible to the employer and non-taxable to the employee, which basically means, hey, great for the business, great for the employee. Uh, Certain benefits like life is a taxable benefit to the employee. Disability is, depends on how it's structured, can be tax-free or taxable, depending on it. But I mean, and then for those of you who want more of a a deep dive into this, there was the interview with Keith Foote. I would suggest you go back to that. We go over benefit by benefit by benefit and explain all of that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, the government's giving a tax break because Hey, it helps keep people healthy. And it helps relieve some pressure from our national healthcare system. You think about Absolutely. Um, I, I believe it's like fifteen thousand dollars a year is the average spend per person on healthcare across the country. About fifty percent of that is covered by the government. The other fifty percent is covered by a mixture of private uh, employers and people's personal savings. And the truth is that if somebody is gonna preempt their healthcare, you know, by going to the dentist, by seeing physio, getting massage, there's reduced chance that they're going to the hospital for a massive procedure or gets really sick and has to, you know, really lean on our national healthcare system. So you know, people don't really talk about it a lot, but it, it is a uh, massive, like really important part of maintaining our healthcare system in Canada. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of moral hazards at play here. I mean, the first one is when we, you know, every Canadian's a little bit 
lax about the entire healthcare issue. I mean, they everybody just assumes that we, we basically, hey, healthcare is paid for. Healthcare is paid for. End of story. Well, there's still a substantial, as you just described, a substantial amount of out-of-pocket costs that happens on an annual basis, whether it's paying for your own prescriptions or, God forbid, you have something serious happen to you you're going to have out-of-pocket costs. I mean, there's, you know, even there's been case studies done that show that, you know, the cost of having cancer or, or a heart attack in Canada, when you start adding up all the ancillary costs from parking at the hospital to things like crutches, things that are uncovered, that can be upwards of $50,000 over the course of two to three years, right? That's not a small sum, never mind the lost work productivity from work. Mm-hmm. And then you throw on top of that, the problem that people, when it comes to group benefits, and this is so common, it's, Oh, they have benefits, checkbox, right? Like, well, you can have benefits, but benefits can be very different depending on the structure. Like we know there's like almost an infinite number of, of ways you can assemble these things. And some of what we do is just to basically go through in the, in the risk management review with our clients and explain like, okay, you have benefits. Here's what you're covered for. Here's what you're not. And they're just like, I'm not covered for that. Like they sometimes, it's just by saying you have something, you assume it means everything that people think it means, but not necessarily, right? It's, it's interesting. A lot of companies... And rightfully so, don't structure plans based on what they believe people need as much as they do it based on benchmarks for their industry. Or what uh, people want, think what they think people want, right? It, like that's, exactly. that's the other thing. And to be fair, people who manage these plans internally aren't experts in health and wellness, nor should they be. And that's probably one of the, one of the most yeah. interesting shortfalls of our current system. Like there's no reason why a head of HR or a CFO should be picking the appropriate amount of dental and drug coverage and physio for their employee base of like- Whether or not they have disability or not because employees maybe don't want to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the clear shortfalls of our system is that you have to pick a single bucket size that everybody has to fit into. And yeah, it, there's a lot of good stuff and there's some shortfalls and that's one of my pet peeves when I look at the industry as it is today. Well, I mean, it's also a thankless job to some degree, right? So like employees expect it and you don't get the like, oh my God, thank you so much for having this policy in place. Like you don't get feedback that that's reinforcing. You get complaints, right? Like you get like, oh, you know, I don't necessarily want to pay for this. I'm not using it. Can I just take the money instead? Or why do I have to, why is there a portion that I have to cover? Like, it's just, it's a very thankless job in a lot of ways, right? But it's an expectation. And it's also a good uh, segue into uh, how you make, benefits plans more sustainable. When you give everything and anything to your entire employee base from day one, it is almost impossible to take things away. 100% reimbursement is, yeah. And that's one of the things I coach people on all the time is, look, the thing that matters is sustainability. Even if 100% reimbursement looks affordable to you now, it won't take many bad claims years to make this thing super expensive. (laughs) And, you know, as you know, it's rough because, you know, not only do you have to be an expert in health and dental and picking the programs, you also have to become a underwriter and understand uh, loss ratios and all these other yep. renewable factors that factor into the price increasing every year. The average benefits plan cost, I think it went up 7% last year and has been going up an yep. average of that for the last, like, I don't know how many years. It's completely yep. unsustainable. Well, it's largely pushed by the drug cost, right? Like those are growing by double digits every year. Uh, Population is aging. So you have that as well, right? But the other thing too, is that unfortunately, unlike the, you know, one of the things I like about the life and health world is that the price is the price is stated. doesn't matter. There's no negotiation, right? If you're unhealthy or if you have a problem, then it could cost more, but then you can also shop around and, you know, you can get competitive quotes, but there is no, the base price, there's no mystery to it. Whereas you get these renewals from insurance companies and sometimes they're completely unfounded, right? Like 
like I, I kid you not, we've seen double digit, like 20, you know, as a request for 15, 20% increases. And, you know, we look at the data and go back and say, are you kidding me? Like, look at this. This makes no sense. We think you should be at four. And then they come back and give us six. And it's like, how did you go from 15, 16, 17 to six? Like, you're clearly just trying to gouge this. Like, you're, there's mm-hmm. unfortunately, and I will say this, and this is a criticism of the entire industry, is there is, there is definitely gouging of the lazier or laxer agents or people who don't know enough to fight back. Yep. Right? Yeah. And that's something that you have to have, an, you have, to have someone managing this who is diligent and understands the industry to fight back against that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, so the, in, in, yeah. the initial way that these plans are set up really accommodates for situations like that. You, yep. know, you break down what people are paying for. A portion of it is insurance products where there can be some huge loss and you need to insure that. But a, huge, a much bigger portion of that are known costs yep. that people can plan and save for that you should be paying an insurance cost for because there's a huge premium on that. Like, you know, you think about most loss ratios are around 70% as an average. I think that's pretty fair. So there's a margin of 30% of like, it's like a black box and nobody yep. knows like the costs that go into it or why it's like that. And the truth is for those expenditures, closer to 100% of the dollars you put in should be going towards them, not 70 cents out of every dollar. And today that's just the way it is in Canada. Yeah. It, like I bet you 90 Nine percent of plans are structured that way. No small business. I mean, there's just there's a cost of distribution on the small business side plus the compensation. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, advisors are compensated based on the premium. I mean, comp- fortunately and unfortunately, because but then they're incentivized to have you paying as much as possible before you quit, right? Like it's, it's the, this entire. It's the principal agent problem. Yeah, like, totally. You could be like Jason. You are who I consider be one of the best. You know, Thank you, advisors like in Canada, bar none. But your incentives are still. Poorly structured because you know yeah. I trust that you're going to give the right advice, but whether you give your incentive is to get people to pay more, which results in you making more. And the truth is, it should be a flat fee across the board, you know, per person or for company size. But whatever, whatever it should be. I mean, there should be some. I believe that there should be optionality in in the structure because, like, we're letting people dictate how it has to work, right? And that's. That's, you know, again, I do, I've done a lot in my business to try to eliminate as many conflicts as possible. Some of them I just can't get away from. And the only thing you can't get, you know, when that's the case, you know, all you do is, I mean, the other part of it is, is transparency, right? So it's like, hey, I am doing this. This is what it's going to make me. Uh, here's why I think it makes sense. If you want to disagree, let's have a conversation. But I mean, there's no matter what business you're in, you can't fully get away from the conflicts of interest. And, and frankly, the reality is, is that I'll be honest, I could have made substantially more money off several of the larger, off of lots of clients for doing the wrong thing. But I just have a simple rule, which is I just believe the clients aren't stupid. And sooner or later, they're going to find out that I did something that was benefiting me, not them. Right. And I often also say that, you know, if you're not disclosing compensation, all this other stuff to clients, you're just leaving yourself susceptible to someone like me who's going to come along and explain that to them and explain the fact that you didn't do that. And maybe there was a reason for it. And sometimes that reason is very transparent, unfortunately. So it is what it is. I just think there's more money to be made long-term by being honest and, and, and forthright, but that's my diatribe. Anyway. So, um, and as we mentioned, so again, we talked, we were back, we were back on benefits programs. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When we design these things to start, I always focus specifically on sustainability and, and some cost sharing as a means of preventing people from going crazy with it. I also, even on the onboarding, tell all the employees when we do the onboarding, do not treat this like a blank check. This is here to help you in your needs. 
you want to go and get every last paramedical practitioner under the sun to service you with things you don't need, then you are basically going to sow the seeds of your own destruction. This plan is going to be cut back. This plan is going to become more expensive. This plan is going to start coming out of your paycheck. So be responsible to the community and it will be responsible to you. Some of them listen, some of them don't. And sometimes the employers don't know. I mean, I've literally had employers who literally, first renewal came back and I'm like, oh my God, how is there so much massage therapy in this? And I talked to the administrator like, oh, we bring in a massage therapist every Friday. I was like, they're like, should we stop? I'm like, yes, you should stop. <laughs> this, was, this was not meant to be a blank check. This was meant to be there to support people who need massage therapy because it's a medical reason, not just because, hey, it's convenient and it feels good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so interesting the way these things work. A lot of people don't understand that when you first get quoted for a benefits plan, people will underprice that plan significantly to win the business with the expectation that they can jack up the price in the next year or two to make up for that. And most insurers will not accept or quote on a business that's been with an insured for one year. Yeah. And it's all these funny things happening. And there's a lot of good that comes from the way benefits are structured in Canada. But again, like what you just described in like making yep. sure people, that's not even fraud, but like just are responsible with the usage. You yeah. shouldn't have to deal with that at all. You should say, yeah. here's your bucket, do whatever the hell you want with it. <laughs> Yeah, but, but here's it. True, but I mean, here's. But I look at it this way. I always say, you know, in a perfect world, what would happen is that insurance companies would travel forward in the future one year, see everything that your people spent, travel back in time with that number, add on taxes and fees to administer the entire plan, and then they would get the renewal right 100 of the time. But without time travel, we can't do that. And the reality is, is that. If you go in and you go nuts, and back to your point about they won't quote you on one year. They won't quote you on one year because if you're the kind of company that's going to literally competitively shop every year, they know that if they get it wrong in the first year, they're going to take a bath and never recover, right? No one wants that. They accept that there's risk to this, and they know that if they, you know, maybe it's a year or two they get this wrong, but sooner or later they'll get it right, and they'll finally start to make what they were supposed to be making off. But if you're going to jump around every year, you're going to get blacklisted or blackballed very quickly. Yeah. And then, you know, good luck as an employer who can't offer a health benefits yep. plan when you're in an industry where that is the expectation. Yeah. And who wants to be filling out new forms for insurance every year to two years anyway? Like, <laughs> and I'll tell you, I've come across, I literally come across countless cases I've taken over where it's like, so the insurance agent had us here and then two years ago we were there and three years ago we were there. And literally it was every time there was a window to change them because the, the claims got bad, it basically was moved. And it was moved because, you know, the agent had them at hundred percent reimbursement and everybody was taking, taking every penny they could out of it. So it was clearly, he wasn't looking out for, he or she wasn't looking out for the best interest of the client. So I guess one of the tips we're going to give you is, is make sure you have someone on the benefits side who's working collaboratively with you for sustainable solutions. And we'll go from there. And that you trust. I think, Trust is such a massive huge piece there that doesn't get underscored. Trust is earned, though. You have to give them the opportunity to earn that, right? And you'll have to, you'll have to judge for yourself on that. Yeah. Is it, if your advisor is not telling you how much money they're making by working for you, that is the biggest red flag. First red flag. First red flag right there. Actually, I would say not even, not even basically telling you, showing you. Showing you what that's actually is. Because yeah. you can say one thing, proving it is another. Anyway, so this has been great. Any final thoughts before we wrap up on this? Yeah, crazy times right now. <laughs> the world could change. Business world could change in a meaningful way. It's the way we work. But the things that, you know, it's always prudent to focus on the things that won't change. Treating people yep. well, being empathetic, being very considerate. And if you have no technology in your people management stack, but you have those things as principles, I think you're going to be okay. And so yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. 
Agreed. So uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So uh, Humi, H-U-M-I.ca is our company. I'm on Twitter quite a bit, or if people feel compelled, you can shoot me an email, kevin at humi.ca. Happy to connect with anybody, help people out, you know, debate anything I might've said here. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, those are generally the best places to find. Fantastic. Thank you yet again. Take care of yourself. Thanks, Jason. So that was my interview with Kevin Kleiman of Yumi. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you take the time to check out his platform. I do highly endorse it. As always, this has been Jason Pereira, and this is the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. It really does help people find us. Thank you. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.